The sermon title today is called Mighty Warrior. You might know who this is about. Mighty Warrior. It's about Gideon. We're going to talk about Gideon today. But before we talk about Gideon, I'd like to ask you a question. What comes to mind when you think of Mighty Warrior? Not just any warrior, but what comes to mind when you hear Mighty Warrior? Maybe your mind goes to a movie character. Mine went to Maximus from the movie Gladiator, who was a Roman general who was sold into slavery and had to fight for his honor and had to uh, ascend from the uh, enslavement that, that he was in. Um, you might think of a warrior from the Eastern world, maybe Japan, where samurais uh, adorn themselves in a leather uh, samurai outfit with a large samurai sword. Or you might even think of biblical warriors, warriors such as David, Jonathan. Jonathan has one of my favorite stories in the Bible where he and his armor bearer climbed up a cliff. Do you recall that? And they fight 20 or so Philistines in a matter of one acre. That's impressive. Another warrior in the Bible is Samson, which is also in the book of Judges, which we're going to read here soon, where Samson was such a strong warrior that he could take down pillars and he can defeat his enemies with the jawbone of an animal. What comes to mind when you think of a warrior? Someone who's courageous, someone who is bold, someone who is probably fit. You know, someone who's cut, who has muscles, someone who's agile, someone who's intelligent, someone who thinks very fast in the midst of battle. So let's think about Gideon. Because Gideon, from the way that chapter 6 of the book of Judges describes him, he doesn't fit that mold. He's opposite of what we just imagined a warrior would be. Turn with me to the Bible here. In Judges chapter 6, in verse 11, it tells us that Gideon, when he's introduced into the story, it says that Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. He's a farmer, number one. Gideon is a farmer. Number two, the other thing about Gideon is it tells us in verse 15 when he's having this discussion with God or with the Lord, he says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And if you know anything about Manasseh, Manasseh was one of the weaker tribes. So not only does he come from a weak clan, but he also comes from the weak tribe. And then he adds more insult to injury by saying, I am also the least in my family. So the other way to translate that is that Gideon is the least, is the weakest of the weakest of the least. Very far from the warrior like Maximus that we're thinking about, right? Or Samson. But it doesn't stop there. I have more for you, friends. I sound like an infomercial. I have more for you. In Judges chapter 6, verse 27, We'll go more into detail later, but it briefly says here that 
Gideon was afraid of his family and the men of the town. So in destroying the Asherah pole and the Baal idols, what does he do? He does that at nighttime because what does the Bible tell us? He's afraid. He's afraid. So not only is he a farmer, um, the weakest of the weak, not only is he the least of his family, not only is he afraid, there's one more thing that we could see about him in this book, in this chapter. In uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 36, all the way to 40, he has that interaction with the, with the fleece where he talks to God and, and asks God, hey, God, if you're really for Israel, can you make sure this fleece is wet? Then he says, can you make sure this fleece is dry? A lot of people have seen that interaction between God and Gideon as Gideon being doubtful of God. So describing Gideon in just a matter of few minutes, he is a man of fear, a man of doubt. He doesn't strike me as a warrior because he grew up as a farmer. If you were to read ancient history, Spartans, the nation of Sparta, were known to raising their kids, like Adrian's age of five, start, to start training them to be warriors. So by the time they became of, uh, of adulthood, they were fierce men that knew how to fight. Gideon was not this. He grew up in the setting of pitchforks, cattle, livestock. He does not seem like a warrior. Now look at Judges chapter 6, verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, the angel of the Lord said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now I have to ask this question. Why would God call Gideon mighty warrior because in the context of this story right now where we're at in the context of this story at this present time Gideon is not a fierce warrior he is meek he seems weak he seems afraid if I were to ask you if this resonates with you you might be able to say yes have you ever felt afraid have you ever felt doubtful have you felt like you were the weakest of the weak if I were to ask you, where is your bravery level on a scale of one to 10, 10 being Samson and Maximus and all these brave warriors and Jonathan and David to a one, which describes what Gideon is, where would you fall? You know, for me, I find myself a little closer to Gideon. I might give myself a little bit of credit. Maybe I'm a two or a three because Props to my dad. I don't think he's the least of his family. So, okay. But I find myself more on this side of the scale than that side. So if you find yourself more on this side of the scale, I want to tell you today, this morning, that this sermon is for you. Because as I look in this room right now, and I bet uh, if you're at home, there are mighty warriors in this room. There are mighty warriors at home, and we're going to find out what that really means. Because I want to propose this morning that God has a different definition of what a mighty warrior is. It's not Maximus. 
It's not even Samson. It's not even David, though they were mighty in their own right. But the true mighty warrior that we're going to see in Gideon, he has a special formula that I think is very important for us today. Okay? So let's go more into Judges chapter 6. And we're going to go through the whole chapter. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to paraphrase the story. Up to this point, the background, the context of this story is that the Midianite nation has now just waylaid. They have, for the last seven years, uh, been a problem for, for the Israelites. It tells us here that the reason for that is because the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Now, what did the Midianites do? They didn't go into combat. Fight, uh, fighting uh, sword to sword with the Israelites. Instead, they did something that was very common back in the ancient world. Instead of losing men in a fight, you just starve your opponent. And that's what the Midianites did. They attacked their livestock. They uh, destroyed the crops of the Israelites. And the Israelites became so afraid that they ended up running into the caves. It tells us in scripture, it tells us here in the first few verses that the Israelites stayed in the caverns, in the caves, and that's where they made their dwelling. That's how afraid they were of the Midianites. Then verse 6 tells us, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they, the Israelites, finally cried out to the Lord for help. It had to take that long. You know, sometimes I'm guilty like that too. Sometimes when I feel like everything is just coming down on my shoulders, I think, you know, I should pray. But I delay prayer. I delay prayer. Because the beauty of prayer is once the Israelites cried out for help, what happens here? Verse 7. I want you to hear this part. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he responded. Verse 8 tells us he sent them a prophet. You know, there's a lot of places in scripture that's very comforting that when someone cries out to God, you know what he does? He listens. God also responds. God also intervenes. He gives deliverance. And so this, this messenger that God brings for the first time, this is going to be the beginning of deliverance for the Israelites. He sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and, the, and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So the prophet is bringing a message to the people and says, if you want God to help, if you want God's presence to be there again, you have to give up the false worship and worship the one true God. And then the angel of the Lord. Some scholars believe that these are two different events. I have uh, some people believe that there is a prophet speaking to the people as a group, while there is an angel of the Lord that uh, goes to, to um, Gideon. 
Um, whatever the case, whether you believe this is one event, that it's the same person just going from this one place to another place, going to Gideon, or if it's two different people, the point I want to make there is God is present nonetheless. God is present. So now we have the angel of the Lord. He comes down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Let's pause there for a second, because that text alone has a lot to unpack. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. How often have you heard that before? Where God says, the Lord is with you. Or the message and the promise is, the Lord is with you. That's the same promise that Moses got in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. You know, uh, when Moses said, who am I that I should go to, uh, the, uh, to Pharaoh to free, the, uh, to free the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? And God says, I will be with you. When Joshua was scared, when he was called to lead the Israelites into the promised land, he said, but I'm young. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? God said, I will be with you. I will give you strength. This is a special way that God calls his people. Because God understands that when we are called, it's a frightful thing. <laughs> Would you not say? Pastor Asherick? It's a frightful thing, right? That's one of the things I had to face when I received that calling. Or when you just start a new project, a new assignment, a new job. What's one of the things that you feel? Naturally, it's fear, right? Maybe there might be some doubt. Hey, can I really do this job? Can I? So I really believe we have more Gideon inside of us than David. Than Samson. I think there's more Gideon inside of us. And the promise that God makes to us today is that He is with you, mighty warrior. You know, but Gideon, hearing that, you would think that he would say, Hey, all right, God, you're with me? Then who can be against me? I'm going to go right in the battle with you. Instead, he has his doubts. He does. He says in verse 13, but sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. What's Gideon's response? A response of disbelief. Is God really here? Look how we have been impoverished by the Midianites. He has abandoned us. We hear the same thing today. When challenges arise, when adversity comes, people tend to ask the question, where is God? Where is God in all of this? Some people aren't only saying God has abandoned us. If anything, some people actually say God does not even exist. God does not even exist. Here's the wonderful answer that the prophet or the Lord says to 
Gideon, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israelite, uh, save the Israelites, save Israel out of Midian's hand. Where's God in all of this? He then says, am I not sending you? Where's God in this? You're going to represent God. You're going to go out there and you're going to perform miracles through the Holy Spirit. You're going to go out there and lead men. You're going to go out there and inspire people. You're the hope of the people, mighty warrior. And that's beautiful. And the other part of this is that go in the strength you have. What did we say Gideon is? He's on a scale of one. Where is he at from a scale of one through 10? He's a one. Even Gideon has now said, that's actually the response that he gives to the prophet next. He says, but Lord Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. Even Gideon recognizes that. How am I going to lead? How am I going to be the leader for your people, God? But God says, your strength with what you have is enough. To uh, Doreen's point about being prepared, I love his analogy with the snowblower. Because it's true, we need to be prepared. But at the same rate, we cannot have that mindset set that to be called by God, I need to sort my life out first. I don't think that's how it works. I think God calls out the person first. He says, hey, I want you to be my servant. I want you to be the leader for this group, this church, or this community. He calls that person out. And it's during the process that they're leading out that they start learning things. That God will take that little strength they have, just like in this situation, and make wonders out of it. Let's keep on reading, and you're going to see what happens to Gideon here. So now Gideon, God, uh, Gideon is now impressed by this, and he's thinking, okay, maybe this is true. And in verse 17, he says, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that this is really you talking to me. Please, Lord, do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And here's the part that's most beautiful. And the Lord said, I will wait. I will wait. You know why that's beautiful? Because God understands your doubts. God understands your fears. God knows where Gideon is coming from. God knows where you're coming from. Many times, sometimes people think that we need to rise up to the occasion and work on God's timetable. But there are places in scripture that tells us that God is willing to work on your timetable. That if it's going to take that long, if you want me to wait, if it's going to take that long for you to believe, I will wait. Because God is a God of long suffering. God is a God of patience. God is a God of love, of kindness, right? And he understands this. He understands why Gideon can be very skeptical. For seven years, his country has been destroyed. For seven years, God has been silent. And now he understands that if Gideon's going to do anything, he's going to work with Gideon's timetable. The Bible also tells us that God is not slow. He's not slow. He wants 
people to repent. He, his slowness is in the hopes of people will come around, right? That's grace if there's ever been an example of grace. So the rest of the story goes, God is waiting. And then finally Gideon returns and he has meat, uh, a young goat that he sacrificed, that he prepared. He has broth for this and unleavened bread, uh, no yeast in it. And then he's given the instruction to put all these things together. And then the prophet of God takes a, um, a staff, I believe, and lights it all in fire. And Gideon starts believing even more. His eyes start opening even more. In verse 24, it tells us, so Gideon built an altar to the Lord to dedicate it there and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. Gideon's coming around. Maybe that's where you are in life right now. You're asking God for signs. And the beauty of it is God will work with you on that. God will provide. And he does. Verse 25, that same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. What this then tells me is that the mighty warrior that is called by God will be put to work right away by God. And I think for the mighty warrior of God, that helps the mindset of the mighty warrior. This part of the story is where it tells us that Gideon was afraid to do this in broad daylight to destroy the false idols and the Asherah poles. And that's why he does it at night. At first glance, since we're talking about Gideon, at first glance, it looks like he's afraid. And that's why he does it. But let me reframe this story for you just a bit. If God were to ask you right now to go into a hornet's nest and just poke it and prod it, to go into the center of enemy camp, what would your feeling be? Would, would it be one of fear? Yeah, right? It would be. Would you, do you think you could even do it? I would be afraid, and I would wonder if I would have the courage to do something like that. But what does Gideon do? He proceeds, even though he is afraid, nonetheless, this is an oxymoron, nonetheless, he still proceeds to do what God had asked. He still proceeds and destroys the Asherah pole in, in his father's household. That, my friends, if you were to ask me, is bravery. While scripture, while it tells us, point blank that he was afraid. Yeah, he was afraid to do it at daytime. Nonetheless, he had the bravery to do something that was frightening. And that tells me something about this mighty warrior, that he is actually not as afraid that, as we may think he is. Verse 
Hmm. The other point I wanted to make with this is, isn't it beautiful that when God calls the called person, the servant, one of the first thing he does is make sure you tear down anything that can hinder your spirituality. He tells Gideon, go back to your father's house. Make sure you're right with your father. Make sure you're right with your father's house. Make sure those false idols are gone. In my ministry, that's something I had to learn. As some of you know, I was that wayward kid that caused a lot of trouble for my parents. And for my parents and I, our relationship in my early 20s was like a roller coaster. Because I brought so much headache to them. But then when I came into the ministry, I realized I had to make peace with that past. And that's what I hear in this story. This part of the story is God telling Gideon, if you're going to go further in this calling, go back full circle. Doesn't God do that in other places in scripture? Going back to Moses as an example, where does Moses go back? He goes back to Egypt. Goes back to Egypt. Make sure your, your past is, is set in anything that can hinder you from the past, especially if it's going to pull you away from the Lord, especially if it's idol worship, if, especially if it's something that's going to cause you to sin. Make right with that first. And that's what Gideon does. And I believe that's what gave Gideon the strength to take down the false idols. I believe that's the reason why. Upon the time that he does that, what happens? The men of the town are angry. The men of the town want blood. They come out the next day and they tell Joash, uh, Gideon's father, where is your son? Bring him out here. We want to teach him a thing or two for what he did to, uh, to the idols of Baal and to the Asherah pole, right? And then Joash, I believe he was impressed by what he saw his son do, that he actually stood up for his son. And he said, well, why do you feel like you need to defend Baal? If Baal is a true God, he's going to be able to defend himself. And what happens next? The people are actually thinking about this. And they said, you know, there's got to be truth in that. That's what the ancient world used to believe in is that, If we win, if we're victorious here, that means our God is greater than your God. Well, now Joash put that to the test. (laughs) He said, if Baal is truly God, well, then then Baal can defend for himself. And the people in verse 32 were impressed by this. And they said that day, so that day they called Gideon Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar there's not much else that happens between the story from this time when the people are making this proclamation to when Gideon starts gathering the people so what this leads me to believe is that when you look on verse 34 it says then the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet summoning the Abyssalites to follow him that's his father's people he then sent messengers. Uh, he then sent messengers throughout Manasseh, uh, Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali to also gather those people. There's not much else between the incident or not the incident, the event of when he destroyed the 
false idols until the people are coming together. There's not much other details between that. So that makes me think that the people were inspired by what Gideon did with the uh, false Baal idol and the Asherah pole. That they became so inspired that they heeded his call. See, the mighty warrior can be afraid. The mighty warrior might be doubtful. But if the mighty warrior takes the strength of whatever he or she has and follows in faith, God will do wonders nonetheless. And that's what's happening in this story. The spirit of the people are coming alive. You know why? The spirit of people come alive when God's spirit is there. That's what's happening here. And then you might ask, as most people do, then why, if Gideon is doing all these fantastic things, does the story of chapter 6 end with doubt? (laughs) Why? Verse 36 to 40, let's read together. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand. After Gideon has had this experience with the Asherah pole, after destroying the Baal idols, and after the people coming together with him, Gideon still has this question. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And this is how the chapter ends. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Brothers and sisters, I think this is not an interaction that shows doubt from Gideon. Although that is the main idea that we seem to hear from, from maybe sermons or books that we read, or just it's almost become like it's common knowledge. Here's doubt from Gideon. I don't think this is doubt. I truly believe, I truly believe that this passage here, this part of this story, holds the key ingredient of what a true mighty warrior is in God's sight. The true mighty warrior seeks to consult God. The true mighty warrior is humble enough to say, I am weak, to acknowledge that I cannot do it without you. The true mighty warrior recognizes that if there's going to be victory, God has to be there. I think that's what's really happening here. It's not a matter of doubt. It's a matter of Gideon showing himself to be a leader who is compassionate towards his people. I think he's thinking about his people here too. 
I mean, that's what he's saying here, right? He's saying, if you will save Israel, because if I am doing this on my own agenda, then lives could be lost. He's thinking about his people. So he's considerate. He's thoughtful. He's compassionate. And he also is humble. And I think that is why he is considered a mighty warrior. From this scale of 1 through 10, you know, I talked about Samson. One of the things that Samson had to learn, what was it? Humility, right? He didn't learn that until the day he was pushing those pillars down to take down the Philistines. He didn't learn that until his eyes were gouged out. Moses had to spend 40 years in the desert to be humbled so that the things he learned in Egypt for the first 40 years of his life were going to be uh, that it was going to be taken out. But Gideon, for some way or manner, in his calling in the first few days of the interaction that he has with God, he is very considerate and mindful. He wants to make sure that, that he is hearing God the right way. That's what it is. It's not doubt. I think he's really wanting to say, God, am I hearing you the right way? You know, am I hearing you that this is your promise, that you're going to save Israel from the hands of the Midianites? If that's the case, I want to make sure I'm right because there's too much. There's too much on the plate here that if I'm wrong, boy, we're in trouble. Wow. What would it take if our leaders were like that? Imagine what life would be. Brothers and sisters, you are God's mighty warriors. And to be his mighty warriors, I think we need to take the Gideon formula. To have that humility, that consideration, that compassion, that thoughtfulness. And that desire to make sure God, God's way is truly the way that, that I need to go to. We need mighty warriors today. We do. Because if you look around our land, our nation, we have divisions everywhere. And I hear it often as a chaplain. Patients asking me, is God still here? Has God abandoned us? Why does God allow innocent people to die from COVID? Those are difficult questions. Those are theological, profound questions. And to answer that, we have to be mindful like Gideon. We need to have the mindset, the humility, like Gideon. 